Hello, good evening, and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. We are hoping tonight to conclude part three in what will ultimately be a seven-part series. And if we do have anyone new listening in, I want to mention that the notes and all of the previous recordings of this and other series are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and you can download the outline there and also access any of the previous studies. Each week these are recorded and then they're uploaded to our website. We are finishing part three in this series, which is entitled Glory Gained and Lost in the Old Testament. And starting next time, we'll be moving into part four, which takes us into the New Testament, which also has a lot to say about the glory of God. Now, picking up from where we were last time, uh, we saw the very sad and tragic uh, story of Eli and his sons, and the ending of the story was basically with the Ark of God being captured by the Philistines. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant was really a symbol of the very presence and glory of God. So the news that the Ark had been captured was very, very disturbing, both to Eli and to his two daughters-in-law, because both of his sons, his wicked sons, were put to death that day, just as God had promised and spoken through the man of God and confirmed through the prophet Samuel. Now the news comes to Eli that the ark has been captured, his two sons are dead, he falls over and dies in the middle of the road, his daughter-in-law goes into labor, gives birth to a son as she is dying, and she names the son Ichabod, coming from the word which we've mentioned a number of times now, the Hebrew word kabod, which means glory. Ichabod means glory lost or glory departed. And the reason she named her son, Ichabod, was again the news that she had received, the ark of God had been captured. Therefore, it was synonymous with the glory of God has left Israel. What a sad, sad day for them to be able to understand. It's hard for us to grasp this because we... We weren't there, we're not Israelites, we didn't understand the central significance of the Ark of the Covenant. The very name indicates this was the very symbol of God's covenant with his people. And in a sense, the Ark being captured now, the glory departing from Israel, although God was not going to forever forsake Israel, his manifest presence, which they had enjoyed for many, many years, was now departing. 
And I want to wait till the very end tonight to comment more on that and, and try to tie this into how it relates to us. But I hope that impacts you the way it has me, that we can do without a lot of things, but we cannot do without the presence and the glory of God. And if that is our revelation, our passion, and our longing, I think God will continue to meet with us and manifest his presence. But if we begin to put other things ahead of him and even become satisfied with other things that have taken the place of the manifest presence and glory of God, we, my friends, are in serious trouble. Now, I want to continue in the story in 1 Samuel, and unfortunately a lot of these scriptures are not in your notes, so um, we've come to page 24, the conclusion to part 3, but I want to sort of trace what happens to the Ark of the Covenant once it is captured by the Philistines, because I think this even emphasizes and confirms more the, the very power and glory that is associated with the Ark, and how this was not just a thing, but God was evident, God was radiant, God was manifest wherever that Ark went. Now, we'll pick it up at the end of 1 Samuel 4, and then we're going to move uh, through the next couple of chapters. I think it's fascinating to read this and to understand what actually happened after the glory departed from Israel. But in 1 Samuel 4, verse 21, as Eli's daughter-in-law is dying in childbirth, verse 21 says, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. You may have a note in your Bible, Ichabod literally means no glory. They, they now have no glory. What a name to give to a child. No glory, Ichabod. Saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And it doesn't mention this, but also her brother-in-law. All three died in one day. The, the judgment of God, my friends, it can often delay long, but when it comes, look out. Verse 22, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, the Philistines had no idea what they had gotten themselves into. And that's what we're going to read about next. They now have the ark of God in their possession. And starting with 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple, Dagon was one of their false gods that they worshipped. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple 
and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon, put him back in his place, but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Now let's pause for a second. As sad as it is for Israel right now, because they've lost the glory, they've lost the presence of God and the ark, look at what happens when the ark is even brought in proximity to these idols and false gods. I love this. They fall on the ground, and then they're broken to pieces. The head and the hands are broken off of these idols in the presence of Almighty God. This is why we need the glory of God in the church. This is why we need the glory of God in our lives. Every other idol, every other God, every other high thing must be brought down when the glory of God is elevated, manifested, and exalted in the midst of God's people. And here, even in the enemy's temple, the ark of God brings down their idols and their false gods. Hallelujah. Our God is mighty. He's the most high God. Every other knee must bow. Every other idol and demon and God must fall to the ground before his awesome presence and glory. Verse 6, the Lord's hand, remember, all they've done is take this wooden box overlaid with gold. Now, granted, it was an expensive box, but in the natural, all it is is a wooden box with some gold on top of it and a few items inside. But it's so closely associated with the presence and the glory of the living God. Verse 6 says, the Lord's hand. Notice that. Not the box, not the ark. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He, he, Jehovah God, the living God, he brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, now listen carefully to their words, the ark of the God of Israel. This isn't just a box now. They understand the connection between this ark and the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us. His hand. They acknowledged there's a living God associated with this box. Because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon 
our God. So, they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? I love that. What shall we do with this thing? We stole it from them. We've brought it here to Ashdod, but we weren't counting on this. we got to get rid of this thing. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? You know, I, I don't want to diverge too much, but our culture today, we've, we've talked about this umpteen times, it is getting progressively perverse, darkened, moving further and further away from godliness and truth. And the culture we're in, they don't know what to do with the glory and the presence of God. And they get very troubled when God shows up because they can't put him in a box. Sorry for the pun, but they can't. They can't box him up. And they don't know what to do with a living God. Oh, they know what to do with their little idols and their little false gods. But when the living God shows up and starts to afflict them with death and tumors and judgments and catastrophes, they're not going to know what to do. And let me tell you, God is coming in these last days with a heavier and a heavier hand of judgment upon those nations that have consistently and deliberately rejected him and turned their backs on him, as were the Philistines here. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand, not the box, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He, the living God, he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. We wonder where all these diseases and pestilences are coming from. Every couple of months, there's some new plague, Zika virus, and this bird flu, and that kind of monkey flu. And where are these things coming from? I'll tell you where they're coming from. Ultimately, they come from the devil, but it's the Lord's hand allowing Satan to bring afflictions, diseases, and sicknesses upon a culture that has rejected God. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. They keep moving it. Get it out of here. We don't know what to do with this thing. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand 
was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up from heaven. This is the living God that's now absent from Israel. The glory departed from Israel. And now the Philistines are finding out the hard way that this ark is intimately connected with the living God, his glory and his presence, and they can't handle it. In chapter 6, continuing on, when the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, that's all they could take, seven months of this, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Notice that. This is not just an object or some religious idol or symbol, by all means send a guilt offering to him. They're understanding more and more that they're dealing with a living God here. And they need to somehow pacify him, appease him with some kind of an offering. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. You know, it's amazing the stupidity, the ignorance that comes upon people when they're walking in darkness. Five gold tumors? Are you kidding me? Five gold rats? This is the offering they want to give to the Lord? Well, better than nothing, I guess. But look at the, the darkness that has taken over their minds. Romans 1 tells us when people turn away from the Lord, their foolish mind becomes darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. So here they are, five gold tumors, five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. We learn from this that not only were they being smitten with sickness, disease, and death, but obviously there was some sort of a plague of rats and rodents that had broken out throughout the country. Perhaps he will lift his hand. He will lift his hand. Again, they realize this is a living God they're dealing with. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Notice they still know all about what 
the God of Israel did to the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. This news had spread far and wide. Why do you harden your hearts as they did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows of the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. Now, you may not be able to follow what's going on here, but these mother cows, there's no way in the natural they're going to separate themselves from their suckling calves. They're going to go right back to wherever their calves are, unless something supernatural is drawing them away from their calves to the territory of Beth Shemesh, back to Israel. Well, verse 10, so they did this, they took two such cows, hitched them to the cart, and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. Never even looked back for their calves. Something supernatural is driving them out of Philistine territory, back into Israel, carrying the ark, the glory, back to Israel, toward this place called Beth Shemesh. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Of course, they're not going to go any further, because that's the end of Philistine territory. Now, verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua, of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest con containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. Now, this was a divine journey that these cows took carrying this ark 
by no accident or coincidence, they end up in this town of Beth Shemesh, which you can look up in Joshua chapter 21, find out that it's one of the priestly towns. That's why Levites are there, and they know what to do with the ark. They begin immediately offering burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. So, the ark has made it at least back into Israel, crossed the borders from the Philistines back into Israel. Seven months it was with the Philistines. Now it's come to Beth Shemesh. Verse 17. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers. The fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But, remember, it's an awesome thing to get near this ark. It was an awesome thing for the Philistines to try to take it into their territory. Now that it's back on Israel's territory, they need to be very, very careful because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the Bible says. And here, again, we have a very frightening reminder that this is not just a box, a symbol, an it, or an idol. This is the very presence and glory of the great God of Israel. Notice what happens in verse 19. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Wow! 70 died right on the spot, because they dared to look inside the ark. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand, note these words, in the presence of the Lord? Who can stand, not in the presence of this box, this ark, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? They, like the Philistines, learned the hard way, this is the very presence of God. This is the manifest glory of God. Be careful what you do when you get close to the glory and the presence of God, because he is holy, holy, holy. They ask the same question. To whom will the ark go up from here? What are we going to do with this? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. 
So the journey continues. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord, chapter 7, verse 1. They took it to Abinadab's house. He's a priest. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. Now, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. So, seven months and some change, it was with the Philistines, came back to Beth Shemesh, then comes to this place, Kiriath-Jerim, and it stays there for 20 years with Abinadab. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord. And serve him only. And he will deliver you <clears throat> out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. You know, it's taken 20 years, but finally... They're getting the message. If you want the glory of God, if you want the manifest presence of God to come back to you, you need to get rid of all your false gods. You need to get rid of all the foreign gods, all the idols, Ashtoreths, Baals, and whatever else it is that you've allowed to take the place of Almighty God. And it's no different today. If the church wants the glory of God, we're going to have to do some repenting. We need to get rid of our foreign gods, our idols, all the things that we've elevated to first place above God. And you can fill in the blank, whether it's job, money, family, me, myself, and I, my ambitions, my career, 10,000 other foreign gods may have taken his place. God is saying, if you want my presence, if you want my glory to be restored, get rid of the foreign gods. Now, here the ark spent 20 years in the house of Abinadab. And there it remained until, and we have to fast forward in our story, we come to the time of King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's only here, under the kingdom and reign of David, that the ark is finally rescued from the house of Abinadab and brought back to Jerusalem. 
Second Samuel <clears throat> chapter 6. And this is key because David is a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going to transition us nicely into part 4, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. David, the progenitor of the Christ, he is the one who is finally going to bring the glory, bring the ark back to Israel, and more specifically, back to Jerusalem. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting with verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. I want you to pay attention to some of these details. 30,000 men David has rallied for this event to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. Amazing. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, by the way, let's pause for a minute. This new cart was never prescribed in the law of Moses. You may remember the Ark of the Covenant had rings on it, and the priests were to insert poles through those rings and carry it on their shoulders. This was a new idea, a new cart that they're using to try to bring the ark back. Their intentions were good, but they were doing it the wrong way. We can try our little new fads and our little modern ideas, and some of those may be okay unless they're in violation of what God's Word has specified for us to do. Here they are bringing the ark back on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, these are priests, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Hallelujah! The glory is finally returning to Israel. What a day of celebration. But, verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there 
beside the ark of God. Here again, what's the lesson? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Verse 8, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. Means outbreak against Uzzah. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Let me pause again here. I'm hoping you're going to remember this whole history that we've read through today because there are some very important lessons to be applied to your life and mine later on. Notice the moral of the story. Be very, very careful what you do with the ark. In other words, be very careful what you do with the presence and the glory of God. You can lose it, and you can do things that are viewed by God as irreverent, and it will bring his wrath swiftly. Verse 10. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. My goodness, going from house to house, city to city, they can't seem to find a place for the presence of God to rest. So now it's in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Verse 11. I love this. Listen to verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Lord, bring the ark to my house. Let your presence, let your glory come to my house. Because the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Verse 12, we're not done yet. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, notice, now they're doing it the right way. They're carrying it, not on some ox cart. And if you read the story in First Chronicles, you can see more detail of how they found out through the law of Moses what they had done wrong, and they corrected it. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Uh, not to get too far off course, but the ephod was to be worn only by the priest. 
David technically should not be wearing the ephod, but David is a unique character. And again, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who would be both king and priest. David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Finally, they're welcoming back the glory and the presence of God. Verse 16, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. You know, there's always going to be a Michael, some sour-spirited person who can't stand to see other people enjoying and celebrating the presence and the glory of God. Too bad. Too bad. Verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. This is good. This is really good. I don't have time to go into this, but it's called the Tabernacle of David. And something very interesting is happening here. The Tabernacle of Moses is not where this ark is placed. It's placed in a little tent that David has pitched. And David sacrifices more burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. What a great day this was. What a celebration to finally bring the ark and the glory back to Israel. And of course, when he finally returns home, his wife is still upset about David dancing and rejoicing before the Lord. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. I like David's answer. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David was so happy that day, this didn't even bother him. The fact that his own wife was mocking him and criticizing him didn't move him one iota. 
I will celebrate today because the glory has been returned to Israel. Now, in conclusion, if you are following uh, page 24 of our notes, let's try to tie all of this together now. We've gone from Eli and his sons losing the ark, the glory departing from Israel, to it traveling around seven months with the Philistines, afflicting them, killing them, smiting them with plagues and diseases, and then this long, uh, convoluted journey back from place to place in Israel until finally King David brings it to the city of God, to Jerusalem. One thing I take away from this whole story, God is very zealous for his glory. He will not allow anyone to steal it from him, and he will not allow any other idol, any other God, to take his place. And that's a sure way to lose the glory of God when we set up some other idol, or even as in the case of Eli, he was honoring his own sons above the Lord. In the tragic story of Eli and the judgment that God brought, not only on Eli and his sons, but his whole priesthood, his whole family was cursed by God. We can learn many valuable lessons on what not to do. And this is going to help us later on when we start looking in the New Testament. Some of these principles are good for us to remember because, recall, Paul said these bad examples are written down for us to warn us what not to do. Don't repeat the mistakes they committed. We can learn many valuable lessons on how not to lose the manifest presence of, of God and his glory in our lives. I made a list of seven things I take away from this story. Number one, watch out for dead traditions and customs of men that can creep in to our worship, into our churches, into our doctrine, just as it had in Eli's day. They had adopted traditions and customs that were not according to the law of God. Watch out for dead traditions and customs of men, especially when they are used as a veil, a cover-up for selfishness and indulgence. That's what was happening with Eli and his sons. They had changed the rules a little bit to favor themselves. They thought that they were above all the other people, and they deserved some special privilege so they could fatten themselves, indulge themselves. Watch out for anything like that. Number two, always, always, always be careful to honor God first above everyone and everything. That was Eli's failure. 
He honored his sons above God. Remember, that's the same word, kabod. He gave more glory to his sons than to God. Now you ask, gave glory? Well, we don't see anywhere in the story of Eli actually giving glory to his sons, but in God's mind, that's what happened. He gave more honor to his sons than he did to the living God. Point number three. This is especially for those of us that are in any kind of leadership positions. Be careful not to abuse positions of leadership and develop a sense of entitlement or special privilege. My God, how many stories we've heard of great men and women of God who established big ministries, they became powerful, they became prosperous, and it went to their heads. And they began to develop this sort of a sense that I'm so great, I have special privilege. I'm not like the ordinary people. I can break a few of the rules because I'm different. Be careful. Be very, very careful not to abuse positions of leadership. It's happening right and left now in governments throughout the world. Politicians think once they get elected, once they get into that office, home free. Now I can start raking in the dough. I pass laws for the people and I can break them because there's a different set of standards for me. Oh, no, 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 no. Every one of these politicians will one day have to stand before the same living God and give an account for what they did with that position. For they, like priests, like pastors, like prophets, we learn in Romans 13, they are ministers of God. They have to give an account for what they've done with their office, with their position. Number four, crucify the flesh. The flesh often representing selfishness, selfish desires, selfish tendencies. Crucify it. You can't teach the flesh. You have to crucify it, the Bible says. Crucify the flesh with all of its lusts. Good shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep, not fatten themselves like Eli and his sons did by fleecing the sheep. Point five, we saw how Eli became progressively blind and there was no vision, no revelation in Israel under his leadership. Number five, watch out for spiritual blindness and lethargy. He was always sitting down, always laying down. God help us to remain stirred up on fire for God. We should be praying every day, Lord, open my eyes, anoint my eyes with eye salve. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Give me fresh vision today of the kingdom of God, of the near return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Stir me up with your word, Lord. 
Watch out for spiritual blindness and, and lethargy. Pray, pray, pray for fresh vision and revelation from God. Number six, don't let the word of God become rare. That's what it says in 1 Samuel 3. During Eli's priesthood, the word of the Lord was rare. What a sad, sad thing. Here's a man of God, and the word of God is rare? Shouldn't happen. May God stir our hearts to study, preach, live, love, memorize the word of God. Stay in the word of God. Speak the word of God. Study it. Dig deeper into it. You'll, you'll never find the bottom. The word of God is just, uh, it's like an unending, unsearchable treasure. You can't get to the bottom of it. You keep digging and digging, and you find more and more buried treasure. And finally, number seven, don't trust in it. Remember, the Israelites thought they could just bring the ark out onto the battlefield, and it would save them. God had essentially already lifted his hand from them. His favor had already departed. And here they're trying to wave some magic charm, thinking the ark is going to save them. And we can, we can fall into the same trap in the church. We think, oh, if we sing hymn number 121, the glory will automatically fall. No. Hymn 121 doesn't do anything unless God wants to come. And, you know, we have our little traditions and our little religious formulas. Oh, if we do A, B, C, D, then the glory will fall. No, not necessarily. Don't trust in its. Don't trust in religious formulas, A, B, C, D. Cultivate a sincere longing and passion for the presence and the glory of God. We should pray every day like Moses. Lord, show us your glory. If you don't manifest your presence, don't take us anywhere. We're not going anywhere without your presence, without your glory. It's the only thing that sets us apart from all the other peoples on the face of the earth. We need to long for, seek for God's presence and glory, especially when we come together for prayer meetings, for worship services. We should all be praying ahead of time, Lord, we want to meet with you today. We're not going to church today to hear what Pastor Wayne has to say or what Pastor Quasey is going to sing. We're coming because we want to meet with the living God. We want an encounter with the manifest presence, fire, and glory of God. So, as we come to the close of this final uh, part of um, part three, glory gained and glory lost in the Old Testament, let this be a foundation as we move now into the New Testament. A lot of these principles we're going to fall back on because they're eternal principles. 
And we need to remember these stories from the Old Testament as we now start to partake in a far greater glory that God wants to reveal through the face of Jesus Christ. What great good news the prophet Isaiah brought about 800 years before the birth of that baby in the manger in Bethlehem, when he cried out in Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Isaiah's prophecy was get ready, prepare the way. One is coming, and the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed when he comes. And all mankind is going to see that glory. We'll look at it next time in part four. Show us your glory, glory in the face of of Christ. And I hope to have the notes for part four uploaded to the website before next week. So until then, let's be praying, seeking, longing for the glory of God. How happy the glory of God made King David that day when the ark came back into Jerusalem. How happy we will be when the glory of God is manifested in greater and greater ways in our personal lives, in our churches, in our ministries. That's what it's all about. God's greatest purpose in these last days is restoring the glory of God. Remember, and we'll look at this more in coming weeks, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus came to reverse all of that. He came not only to reveal the glory of God, but to give it to us, his church. Let's close in prayer tonight, and we'll... Join back together, same time, same place, next week. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we would never forget this story of Eli and his sons and what happened to the ark and the glory of God on their watch. I pray that we would never forget King David and how joyful he was to see the ark return to Israel. 
Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to realize that you are a living God and your manifest presence and glory is something that we want in our lives. But it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sanctify us. Consecrate us. Cleanse us. Help us to put aside and get rid of all the false gods and foreign gods and idols and other things that have taken your place. And Father, I pray that you would help us to honor and glorify you first above everyone, above everything else. You must be first in our lives. We praise you, we honor you, we glorify you. And Father, we thank you for the glory that Isaiah spoke about that has now been revealed through the face of your own Son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes, let us behold the fullness of your glory in the face of Jesus, your Son. God, keep us all in your presence. Keep us all under the precious blood of Calvary now and until Jesus returns in glory for his church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.